Tom was actually the pastor for 20 years of a very large PCUSA church that went through a discernment process and decided it would best to, that the God was really leading them out of the PCUSA, and they tried to, again, peaceably uh, leave the presbytery, which tried back a bunch of shenanigans to stop their process. Sound familiar at all? Um, their church also decided they would leave the PCUSA and voted to do so. Sounds familiar. They were sued. Tom's undergone fun depositions on this. So this is a... Any, anyway, but the little they, they didn't manage to settle and keep your building, which uh, your building probably wasn't falling apart, so that was probably also a difference <laughs> as well. But... Uh, <laughs> but um, Anyway, we thought that, you know, there may be a lot of people for whom it's confusing what we're going through. It's not at all confusing to Tom. And so it's, uh, and, but besides that, I mean, apart from that, he's an accomplished uh, speaker, accomplished pastor, understands folks going through a trial in the wilderness. Uh, him and his wife, Donna, are the adults, are the adults. <laughs> you are adults. <laughs> Which is really encouraging, um, although I think kids could speak. I think adults would be better at this point in our life. Um, I'm just going to go on. There's three adult children they have, daughters who are all overseas. <laughs> it is truly my pleasure to stop talking and to invite you to come up and bring our word, Tom. Garrett, that was hysterical. <laughs> and that's the nicest thing that's been said to me all day, that I'm an adult. I... <laughs> there are my daughters who might dispute that on occasion when they do the dad with the eye roll thing, you know. And they're all adults, but they've, they've, they've made it perfect. They've got it, they've got it down. So we're glad to be uh, with you today. And... Uh, If you're associated in any way with Jim Singleton, you know that this is already problematic because of who Jim is. He's just a wild man of God and uh, a great brother, and I'm I'm really, really grateful uh, to work with him at the seminary. I'm grateful, Garrett, to you and to Jess for kind of getting this, you know, all hooked up for today. I know that takes some work and blessings on you and your family as you continue to mourn for your stepmother. I buried my stepmother last summer. So I know a little bit about that one, too, unfortunately. But uh, peace be with you and your family. Um, Let me give you a little bit more background. Uh, Garrett kind of mentioned some of the things that that we went through in our church. Um, It was more problematic because we had just raised $12 million uh, to redo our facility when we realized we were going to go through discernment. So uh, it was a little challenging on that level as well. But... Some of you are aware, how many of you are in the leadership team here? God bless you, and I mean that. God bless you, because you, yeah. Because you guys have borne the brunt of a lot of things that a lot of the rest of you in the room don't know about, and bless you for that, that you don't know about. But part of what I want to do today is, is help you understand that what you have experienced is an experience that an awful lot of churches have been through. Uh, As Garrett mentioned, my church went through this experience. We did a discernment process. 
for a year and a half with our leadership team. We decided that we indeed would leave. We had a vote. It was 91% to go. Three weeks later, the Presbytery sued us for our property. A year and a half later, we settled on a, a huge dollar amount to escape. It's hard to go through those kinds of things. It's painful to go through those kinds of things. And maybe you all are in that place right now where you're kind of wondering, what's the next thing? Lord, what do we do now? What do you have for us now, Father? Maybe that's where you are. Maybe you're wondering how you fit into God's kingdom now as a church without any property. Maybe you're wondering where you personally fit into God's plan as things move forward now. I think, at least for us in our experience, there was a lot of question marks laid out there for us as we were thinking about the future. What is Jesus calling you to as a congregation? And so today, I want to try and give you a little bit of help, but not I. Hopefully, the word of God from this great passage in the third chapter of the book of Revelation, in this little section in the letter to the church at Philadelphia. Now, I'm not talking about the one south of us, okay? Talking about one over in a place far away in what we would today call Turkey, which was called Asia Minor back in those days. It was a Roman province. It was a pretty cool city, actually. Philadelphia was founded by the Romans to be a gateway of exporting their culture. So it was in a place right on the, right on the border of some non-Greco-Roman land, and they were exporting the culture through them. They knew about open doors in a cultural way in Philadelphia. It was a Roman colony especially for that purpose. Bad news for them. They also were on some major fault lines, and so they had earthquakes all the time. Now, Donna and I have lived through two earthquakes in Southern California. And it is not fun. I remember hiding under the furniture while my whole apartment building was going like this. It's scary to be in an earthquake, and they had been through earthquakes. So much so that in the year A.D. 17, they all left the city because the city was falling down on them. And they camped out in the countryside around the city, and they refused to go back because of all the aftershocks. The people in Philadelphia were used to tremblers. They were used to having their world shaken. And God in his providence established a community of Christians there. And I'm not quite sure whether Paul founded that church or John founded it or who founded it, but it was established by God. He was the one one that founded it, right? God's the one who establishes the church. But this was a church that had been through a lot of earthquakes, Maybe you know something about being through a little bit of an earthquake yourselves. That's who these folks were. And they had been renamed a number of times, but their name always seemed to come back to Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. So let's take a look at what Jesus had to say to the church. And by the way, I mean Jesus said it. Even though it comes through John's revelation... John tells us that it's actually Jesus who speaks his word to the church. And as Jesus speaks to the church, we find 
that these are the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and will not shut, who shuts and no one opens. Is that for me? (laughs) So I want to remember, I want you to remember where this word is coming from. It's coming from the Holy One. And holy, of course, is a word in the Bible. Many of you know this that means separated, apart from, radically other. This isn't a human word. This is a divine word. And it's coming from one who is true. The Holy One who is true. I am the way and the truth and the life, Jesus said. Pilate said to Jesus, he looked him square in the eye and said, what is truth? Truth was standing right in front of him. The one who is holy, the one who is true, is the source of this message. And then we discover that he has the key of David. Jesus is the son of David. He is the messianic king of Israel. And he has the key, which is associated in the ancient world with unlocking the power of kingdoms. So the one who speaks this word to the church, you got to understand who it is that's saying this word. It is the one who is holy, who is true, and who has the key to unlock the power of the kingdom. And that's who Jesus is. So when we hear what he says to the church in Philadelphia, let us understand who it is that's speaking this word. It is God in Christ himself speaking to the church. That's the source of the word as we find it here in the Revelation. So let's talk for a minute about the church that he is addressing. The church has been faithful to Jesus. This is what he says in verse 10. Because you have kept my word of patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the world. The church in Philadelphia had suffered for the truth of the gospel. There was a lot of persecution going on among the churches in the Revelation, probably under the emperor Domitian. People were being murdered for the faith. We don't know exactly what they experienced personally, but we know they were under tremendous pressure. They suffered for the truth of the gospel, and they stood fast in that truth. Sound familiar? And as I said, you're you're part of something that is is big. It's large. It's, It's something that's been going on across the country, and some of you may be in the leadership group and the team there know more about this than maybe others of you do. Your church has gone through a traumatic separation. My church went through the same thing. We joined a denomination that's very much like the one that you're in. And there are now 376 churches that are part of that denomination within uh, just the last few years, since uh, 2012. People have looked at what was going on in our former denomination And they've seen the essentials of the faith fading away. Well, let me give you some examples of this. And these are ones some of you are more familiar with than others. But it's important to understand why we did what we did. 
conviction about the truth of Scripture, that the Bible really is the Word of God. You know, some of you, I, I think, have followed Billy Graham's death and then his funeral this last couple of weeks. The seminary where I serve, Billy Graham was a founder of the seminary. He actually spoke at my graduation. I wasn't there. <laughs> I had already moved. I, I had already gone off. So I missed it. Can you believe it? How stupid. <laughs> but we lived in Southern California for a bit, and there's a place there called Forest Home. It's a beautiful conference center up in the San Bernardino Mountains. And at Forest Home, Billy Graham had a spiritual crisis of faith in the Scripture. He was being hammered by modernists who wanted him to give up faith in the Bible. And he was really worried about it, and he was nervous about it. It was 1949, and he was getting ready to lead the crusade in Los Angeles. And he was up at Forest Home for this conference. And he went out by himself in the evening, and he, he knelt down, and there was, a, there was a stump there, and he put his Bible on that stump. I've seen this place. There's a little plaque there that commemorates this event. This is how it's recorded in his biography, Just As I Am. Oh God, he prayed, there are many things in this book that I do not understand. There are some areas in it that do not seem to correlate with modern science. He paused then and he continued, Father, I am going to accept this as your word by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts, and I will believe this to be your inspired word. His biographer goes on and says, when he stood up from his knees that August night, his eyes stung with tears. Billy Graham said, I sensed the presence and power of God as I had not sensed it in months. Not all my questions were answered but I knew a spiritual battle in my soul had been fought and won. Well, if you know anything about the history of Billy Graham, you know that that crusade that he preached in August of 1949 launched him into his ministry in a profound way. He believed and trusted in the word of God as something that was beyond human, that had a source in heaven, not just on the earth. It wasn't simply the words of human beings. It was a divine revelation of God's character and will for human beings. But there's been a fading in the trust of the word of God. There's also a fading that has taken place regarding the atonement of Jesus. I sat in a presbytery meeting myself, and one of our candidates got up and read her statement of faith, and in her statement of faith, she said, I do not believe in the blood sacrifice of Christ or any other loophole. Ponder that for a moment. We don't have faith now in the atonement of Christ to bring us back into relationship with God. There are several instances, several other examples I could give you of that. I won't go there right now. A lack of faith in Scripture is the word. A lack of 
faith in the atonement of Christ, a lack of faith in God's ordering for human sexuality, that one we all know about, a lack of trust and confidence in the universality of Jesus' death for the world. There are many ways to God, aren't there? The Bible says no. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's not multiple ways. If, if the cross is the answer, how bad must the problem be? But there is a fading of faith that Christ is the solution to the world's problem, which is called sin. And so for a variety of these reasons, hundreds of churches have said, look, we we want to do something new. We want to return to our, our biblical roots. We want to return to a missional theology that's robust. And we want to get back in the kingdom business. And if what it takes is to let go of a building, okay. Okay, then let it go. Let it go. So there's been suffering for this. And some of you have suffered. I understand that some of you actually have been named in this lawsuit thing. I think that's awful. And you're suffering still. But here's the thing. And this is what I want you to really get this morning. With suffering comes a gift. And that gift is an opportunity, and that opportunity in the text in Revelation this morning is called an open door. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, I want to talk about the background of this open door business for a minute, because it's actually a little bit of a theme in Paul. Paul speaks about it. And by the way, Paul robustly connects his own suffering and his own weakness with the power of God. But Paul speaks of this open door. Luke speaks of it in the book of Acts. You know Luke wrote the book of Acts, right? So in Acts 14, Paul has just had the stuffings kicked out of him in Lystra, one of these cities in Asia Minor. Actually, when I say the stuffing kicks out of him, I don't mean that. I mean he was stoned and left for dead. But Paul comes out of that, and Luke tells us that as a result of that, there was an open door for ministry. Paul says the same thing in Colossians 4. Colossians is a prison epistle, but he's talking about the fact that his suffering is opening a door for ministry. At the end of 1 Corinthians, in the 16th chapter, Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, look, I'm I'm going to be heading on down the road to you soon, but I'm going to hang out in Ephesus for a while because there is an open door for ministry here. 
Notice the connection, and it's so biblical and it runs so deep. Suffering, weakness, faithfulness, together, God opens a door as a result. Suffering, weakness, faithfulness, when you put that cocktail together, God opens a door for ministry and for mission. You have been through this set of suffering. And now the question is, where is God opening the door for the ministry and mission of your church? And do you have eyes to see and ears to hear? Are you praying and listening and asking for the Holy Spirit to show it to you individually, corporately. I love the call to prayer, to get together and and be praying. I love that. Now is the season to go really deep in prayer because God has an open door that he wants to reveal to you. I really believe that. I really believe that for you all. There's a a little uh, piece by a guy named Sam Shoemaker And I I really enjoy this piece because it sums up for me this whole thing. It's called, I Stand at the Door. You see, what, what you want to remember here, what you want to remember here is that every door has two sides to it. You can either be on the inside of a door or on the outside of a door. We in the church are on the inside of the door I'm going to read a little bit about here. We're insiders. Most of us who are here are believers in Christ. We're insiders. But there's another side to the door. Those who are outside of the church, those who are outside of the kingdom of God. And they need us to walk through that door that God is opening even now for you to walk through. There are people right outside of you who are desperately lonely, who are struggling, who are hurting. I was having a conversation this week with someone and they mentioned to me uh, someone who actually did some dog sitting for us a while back. And I found out this week that she killed herself. I didn't know. I had no idea. There are people right there right outside the door, who are lonely, who are hurting, who are broken. And they are looking for meaning and purpose, and they are looking for love. And they are looking for Jesus, although many of them don't know his name. He's the one they're actually looking for. And I think God is calling you to walk through that open door even as they themselves are searching for the door so they can come in. So this is what his, his little uh, piece of writing here says. not really a poem, but listen to this. I stand by the door. I neither go too far in nor stay too far out. The door is the most important door in the world. It's the door through which men walk when they find God. There's no use my going way inside and staying there. 
when so many are still outside and they, as much as I, crave to know where the door is. And all that so many many ever find is only the wall where the door should be. They creep along the wall like blind men with outstretched, groping hands, feeling for a door, knowing there must be a door, yet they never find it. So I stand at the door. The most tremendous thing in the world is for people to find that door, the door to God. The most important thing that anyone can do is to take hold of one of those blind, groping hands and put it on the latch, the latch that only clicks and opens to the man's own touch. People die outside the door, as starving beggars die on cold nights in cruel cities in the dead of winter, die for want of what is within their grasp. They live on the other side of it, live because they have not found it. Nothing else matters compared to helping them find it and open it. And walk in and find him. And so I stand by the door. Go in, great saints. Go all the way in. Go way down into the cavernous cellars and way up into the spacious attics. It is a vast roomy house, this house where God is. Go into the deepest of the hidden casements of withdrawal, of silence, of sainthood. Some must inhabit those inner rooms and know the deep thoughts and heights of God and call out to the rest of us how wonderful it is. Sometimes I take a look in and sometimes venture in a little further. But my place seems closer to the opening. So I stand by the door. I admire the people who go way in, but I wish they would not forget how it was before they got in then they would be able to help the people who have not yet found even the door. Or the people who want to run away from God. You can go in too deeply and stay in too long and forget the people outside the door. As for me, I shall take my old accustomed place, near enough to God to hear him and know that he's there, but not so far from people as to not hear them and remember that they are there too. Where? Where? Outside the door. Thousands of them. Millions of them. But more important for me, one of them. Two of them. Ten of them. Whose hands I am intended to put on the latch, so I shall stand by the door and wait for those who seek it. I had rather be a doorkeeper. So I stand by the door. The risen Christ said to the church at Philadelphia, I am opening a door for you which no one can shut. In Jesus' name, amen.